Well, today is a good day. It's especially a good day for a preacher. As we start the book of Romans, I've never preached through the book of Romans. As I've talked with various pastor friends, many haven't preached through it, partly because they're intimidated. There's a little bit of intimidation on my part, but mostly joy and excitement to run through this book. Here at Southside, one of the unique things about us is we believe in not only the inerrancy of God's word, but also the sufficiency of God's word. God works through his word. And so what that means for us as a church is that this book is going to be on this pulpit between you and I. I have really nothing to tell you, but God does. And so we believe in the exposition of scripture. And what that means is that the point of the sermons that come from up here will be the point of the passage before us. Whatever God has to say will set the agenda. And that's what's going to happen with Romans. We're going to work through this book for a good long while it's page 883 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. And this really is the greatest letter ever written. Probably written around AD 56, 57. It's Paul's longest letter, 433 verses. We're going to cover two of them this morning. 7,000 words, obviously written to the church in Rome, to which Paul had never been. Paul's writing this letter to the church at Rome. Paul had never been to Rome. In fact, we don't even know how the gospel came to Rome. I love that. I love the fact that this extremely influential letter, the most famous letter in the New Testament, really came about because of some no-name believer. Probably heard the gospel in Jerusalem, goes home to Rome, and shares the gospel. He or she wasn't famous. But they were faithful, and the world has been changed because of it. Some of you will be changed because of the faithfulness of this person that we don't even know the name of. This morning is going to be more of an introductory sermon, and I want us to consider a few things. I want us to first consider why should we tackle Romans, and I want to whet your appetite. And then I want us to look at the purpose of Romans, which actually is a very complex and debated question. And then finally, I want us to dig into a couple verses. So first, why Romans? Why spend a year and a half or whatever it'll end up being with Romans? Well, the reason is Romans repeatedly impacts the world by impacting people. So I'm excited. I want you to be praying. I want you to be praying for our church, praying for the preaching of the word. I truly believe our church will be different because of our time spent in Romans. And I hope you'll pray the same. As one New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, put it, he said, there's no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. All scripture is inerrant. All scriptures, God breathed. All scripture is important. But God has uniquely in history decided to use Romans to shape and impact his people. Some people say that every awakening that the church has experienced throughout church history was a result of an engagement with the text of Romans. So I want to just mention a few with a little bit of a stroll down church history. Augustine, known by many as St. Augustine. This is the fourth century. Probably no more influential figure than Augustine from the closing of the canon of scripture in the first century all the way to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500. An extremely influential church leader and theologian. He wasn't always that way though. In fact, he was a very promiscuous young man. He had a very devout mama. 
named Monica. I hope that's encouragement to the mamas in the room. Pray for your kids regularly. So mom, Monica was persistent in praying for Augustine, and eventually he comes to faith and, again, has been extremely influential, both within the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church. Roman Catholic church claim Augustine for their doctrine of the church. Protestants claim Augustine for their doctrine of grace. How did it start? Well, it started with the book of Romans. He's at this one point just ridden by his guilt finally. Again, very, very promiscuous young man. But at one point, finally, the Holy Spirit begins to convict him of his sin as his mama had been praying for. And he hears these kids a couple yards away saying, take up and read, take up and read. And so he thinks the Lord is urging him to read the word. And so he grabs the Bible and he decides, I'm going to open it wherever I land. And guess where he opens it? Romans. Romans chapter 13. And here's what he said. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once... With the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Lord, would you do that for people in this room through the book of Romans? Removing anxiety, removing of doubt, set them on a trajectory to be used by you. Around the same time period, there was this bishop named John Chrysostom, golden mouth, one of, very, one of the best preachers of the fourth century. He loved Romans so much that he would have it read to him twice a week. I like that idea. Let me see if Taylor and Nathan Cody can come to my office and read it to me twice a week. About a thousand years later, William Tyndale. William Tyndale was a very famous church leader, most notably because he wanted the Bible in English. He wanted to get the Bible into English in the Catholic church strangled him, and burned his bones. Here's what he said about Romans. He said, it's the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, most pure euangelion, which means gospel. That is to say, glad tidings and also a light and way in unto the whole scripture. The more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. Then, about 100 years later, there's this monk named Martin Luther who's ridden with guilt. He's got a guilty conscience, trying to find forgiveness, but he's not seeing grace because the church in his day wasn't teaching grace, ultimately leading to the Protestant Reformation. In some sense, all Protestant churches are Lutheran. We're Baptists, but in some sense, we're dependent upon what God used Martin Luther to do. You're sitting here in a free church hearing the gospel with a Bible in your lap or on your app because of what God did through Luther through the book of Romans. Here's what he said. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It's worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Sounds a lot like Tyndale, doesn't it? John Calvin, a, a colleague of Luther, another Protestant reformer, said, If we've gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. In many ways, Romans is like a gateway to the whole message of Christianity. Around 200 years later, there was this Anglican named John Wesley, and he was really just discontent with the church, with the Anglican church. So he and his brother, Charles Wesley, who wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hymns, many of which we still sing, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing or Arise My Soul, Arise, or And Can It Be. 
Well, John and Charles get together with a guy named George Whitfield, and they form this holy club. And they're just zealous for the Lord and, and not wanting to be a part of the status quo of what was happening. And Wesley had been discouraged, and he had tried ministry and was ready to give up. And he unwillingly went to this church meeting in Aldersgate Street, London, in May of 1738. Here's what he says about that church meeting. He says, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, what was going on in that church service? Actually, not much. There was a guy in there who was just reading from a book. He was reading from the preface of a commentary. That commentary was Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And John Wesley is lit up and ultimately the founder of Methodism. And many of you know Wesley's influence. I'm praying that many of your hearts are strangely warmed as we tackle Romans. That you have an assurance and a joy like you've maybe never experienced before because you understand the gospel in a whole new way. Or moving forward, the influential London preacher in the 20th century, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, There's a sense in which we can say quite truthfully that the epistle to the Romans has possibly played a more important and more crucial part in the history of the church than any other single book in the whole of the Bible. Or contemporary of Lloyd-Jones, John Stott, very influential preacher in London, was really kind of a superficial evangelist, and he said it was the book of Romans and its message of sin that changed his whole ministry. He said it's the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. Or Karl Barth, who was a famous theologian, and he left theological liberalism because of what God did to his heart through the study of the book of Romans. Or modern-day J.I. Packer said all roads lead to Romans. He called Romans the high peak of Scripture. Or even more modern and influential, a guy named John Piper. John Piper started out as a Bible professor. If he would have stayed a Bible professor, he probably would have written academic books and probably no one would know his name except the academic guild. Well, he's studying Romans, in particular Romans 9, and God shapes his life and he determines this God is not to be analyzed. This God is to be proclaimed. And so he leaves academia, becomes a pastor, and has written Many books, many of which you've read and benefited from. I could go on and on. And this is just the big names. This is just the guys who happen to write about it, right? When the people of God engage the book of Romans, stuff happens. So, did I mention I'm excited? Well, why? Why is it? Why Romans? Well, of course, it's the content of the book, right? It's the message of Romans, because Romans is about the gospel of God's grace. In it, we're going to be renewed in our enthusiasm for the gospel and for sharing the gospel. We're going to hear explicit and clear teaching, all, all sorts of issues relevant today. Here in just a few weeks, homosexuality. Then we'll be confronted with the sinfulness of mankind, confronted with the wrath of God and Adam's fall and its implications for us. Then be assured by the free grace of justification. Our belonging to the family of Abraham by faith. Our transfer from the slavery of sin to the slavery to righteousness. The empowering presence of God we now can obey because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
chapter 8. Chapter 9, election and the purpose and plan of God, the place of Israel. Chapter 12 and following, the call to total transformation in Christ-likeness, the role of government. Chapter 13, chapter 14, gray matters and Christian liberty and on and on and on, much more. We're going to see ourselves, humanity humbled. We're going to see Christ and his cross proclaimed, and we're going to see God glorified. We're going to be here for about a year and a half to two. We'll see, but that's actually fairly short. I mentioned John Piper. He was in Romans for eight and a half years. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was in Romans for 16 years, and he died and didn't finish. It's going to be edifying, but it will be challenging. Every week will be challenging. Listen to what the Apostle Peter said about Paul's writings. This is 2 Peter 3, verse 15. Peter says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Two things about that verse from Peter. Notice he's already considering the writings of Paul as scripture. They twist Paul like they do the other scriptures. But the second thing is that even the apostle Peter says, in Paul's writings, there are some things that are difficult to understand. So we're going to go deep because God's word is deep. So that's why we ought to Spend some time with it. Now let's ask the question, why? What's the purpose? In Paul's mind, in, in the Spirit's mind, why do we have the letter of the Romans? What was going on? Most of our letters in the New Testament are what we call occasional. They're written to address some specific issue in the early church. And it's actually a very debated question. There are whole books debating why was Romans written. I think often scholars just get too buried and they want to narrow it down to one thing. Well, it's usually multiple things. I I'm, I'm tend to be a both-and guy when possible. So I think he wrote Romans for six reasons. And we're going to throw them out here now. And as we work through Romans, we'll see these six reasons come to fruition from the text. So what's the purpose of Romans? Number one, to unify the congregation around the gospel. We're going to see in the church at Rome there was tension. There was conflict in the church. Imagine that. Particularly between Jews and Gentiles. And I think we can really see why historically. In AD 49, Claudius kicked out all the Jewish Christians from Rome. They were just difficult. He didn't like them. They were, it's interesting. There's a secular historian who says that they kept making a ruckus about Crestus. Well, no one knows what Crestus means. It could have been some obscure individual. But if you have Jewish Christians making a scene about Crestus, it's probably just a, a spelling error from the secular historian who didn't realize it's Christos, Christ. They were making a ruckus about Christ. Well, he didn't realize that the Christian faith was beyond Judaism. He kicks out the Jewish Christians in AD 49. And so now you have the church at Rome, which started probably by Jewish Christians, probably majority Jewish Christians. All of a sudden, the Jewish Christians are kicked out of Rome, and you have this church now that's only Gentile. Then in AD 54, he lets them back in. So just think about that. You have the church going strong, Jewish Christians removed, and then several years later, five, six years later, they come back. 
And so if you're a Jewish person and you were used to still practicing your Christian faith in light of the law, there would be conflict. We're not surprised there. In fact, we're going to see that a lot, conflict over the place of the law. So there was ethnic division in the church. So Paul writes to build community around Christ, unify them around the gospel of grace. So John Stott points out that that's one of the reasons there's two main themes that we're going to see again and again. And one of those themes is justification by faith alone. To justify means to declare in the right. And so what they needed to realize, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter your background. We are all in need of grace and we are all saved the same way. We are justified by faith, period. So that's going to loom large in Romans 3 and 4 especially. But also, as we move on in the letter, the second main theme is the fact that the people of God have been redefined around the Messiah. It is now Jesus who determines and defines who are the people of God. So that's the first reason, to unify the congregation. Unify a divided, or at least there's potential for division, congregation around the gospel. Second, Paul wants support. His goal is to get to Spain, and so he needs some help to get there. In this sense, Romans is a missionary support letter. You ever receive one of those from a friend telling you where they're going, telling you why they're going, telling you what they need? That's what partly what Romans is doing. We read in Romans 15, 24, Paul say this. He tells the Romans, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul here, he's writing from Corinth, and he wants to go to Jerusalem, then he wants to go to Rome, but he's really just making a pit stop to get some help to get to where he wants to preach the gospel, namely Spain. So Romans is a missionary support letter. He wants unity around the gospel for the sake of his mission. That's the second reason. Third, he wants them, and the Holy Spirit wants us, to understand the gospel. Again, Paul hadn't been to Romans, so he needs to establish his apostolic credentials. He wants to lay out the gospel before them. And probably the most comprehensive way he does in any of his letters, which is why it's so deep. He wants them to know the gospel and to be clear on the gospel. Because both conflict within the body and confusion about the gospel hinder Christian living and Christian mission. We can't have fighting, and we can't have lack of clarity about Christian doctrine. So this is why Romans is one of the most meaty books of the New Testament. He wants us to understand the gospel. But fourth reason, not just understand, he wants us to experience the gospel. Understanding is essential, and we won't have true experience apart from understanding, but we need to experience our sin and glory in the cross. And boast in the grace of God and then respond with lives committed wholeheartedly for the glory of God. And then fifth, he wants to export the gospel. He wants them to understand, he wants them to experience, and he wants them to export. He is concerned about gospel advancement in Rome, Spain, and beyond. And then sixth and finally, and I think we could say this about any book of the Bible... It, the purpose of the letter is to bring glory to God. He's going to say a little bit later, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. At the end of this letter, 
He's going to say that the purpose and plan of God culminates, quote, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So those are the purposes. Unity, support, understanding, experience, mission, and then to honor God finally. So let's dive in here to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 1 to 7 is actually one long sentence. And I want us to cover here just the first two this morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this morning, briefly, let's just look at the man and the message. The man here in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So first off, Paul. We've got to stop right away because if we already know our Bible, we see that the gospel changes people, doesn't it? We know the book of Acts. Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul started out as Saul. Saul named after Israel's first king, the one who was mighty. He was handsome. He was bigger. He stood apart. But his name changes to Paul, which actually just means little. He goes from Saul the mighty to Paul the little. And that's what the gospel does. That's what Romans is going to do to us. It's going to show us our smallness because it comes to us and confronts us and shows us just how far we have fallen short. Shows us that we can actually never be mighty left to ourselves. Never be strong enough. It's going to expose our sin, expose our inability, move us from a Saul to a Paul. And remember that Saul was a really good person. Very religious person. Remember, he was an up-and-coming Pharisee. Here's how Galatians 1 puts it. He was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. He was an up-and-comer when it comes to religion. Here's how he describes his previous life in Philippians verse three, chapter 3, verse 3. He says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though... I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here he lays out his resume. He was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law said. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, two of the twelve that were faithful. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, both culturally and linguistically. You couldn't get more Jewish than Paul. As to the law, a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect of Judaism, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, so zealous for the law of God that he thought the church was coming along and attacking the law, and so he sought to destroy it. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You couldn't point a finger at Saul. Outwardly, he was blameless, but notice verse 7 whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of. Of Christ. Paul used to be a really good person. And the grace of God came and wrecked him. That's what God loves to do. Come and wreck outwardly good people with his grace. Abilene is full of outwardly good people who have yet to be wrecked by the grace of God. 
It's not until we're stripped of our supposed goodness that we come to appreciate the grace of Christ. And then, as Paul's going to say in Romans 3, then we will truly boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in and of ourselves is excluded. So he goes from Saul to Paul. Notice he says, though, the gospel not only changes, the gospel gives us a new identity. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Maybe your translation says slave. That's what the word really means. English translations like to soften it, partly because I think of our history in America. But when you soften, it actually changes the meaning, doesn't it? It's one thing to be a servant. It's quite another to be a slave. Servants voluntarily serve another person. Slaves are owned by another person. Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. As believers, we have a master, and that master is Jesus. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Our lives are no longer our own. Now we live for him. Here with this word, we have a clear-eyed view of what Christianity is supposed to be like. Full devotion to our Lord. He owns us. We are subject to his authority in all of life, every bit of it. There's no compartmentalization. We are his slaves, slave of Christ Jesus. But then he says he's called, called to be an apostle. And this calling here is more of an effective summings than a casual invitation. Maybe you remember again the story of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. He tells it three times. The Lord knocks him down and the Lord says that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul didn't volunteer. He was called. He was set apart. He was chosen. Even before he was born, Galatians tells us, again, Galatians 1, 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was called to be an apostle, and we learn from 1 Corinthians, he was the last of the apostles. Considered himself least of the apostles, one untimely born. So he's called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the way, I hear more and more, uh, more liberal theological circles want to say something like, well, that was Paul. Jesus never said. And right away, we need to dismiss that sort of talk. The words of Paul are on the exact same weight and authority as Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And as a divinely commissioned apostle, his words have this very same authority as the words of the Lord. And so that's the man, Paul. What of the message? Let's look at verse 1 again. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's set apart for the gospel. Paul has been set apart for the gospel. And as I've said before, gospel is really important to know kind of the twofold background. If you had a Greek ear, a Roman ear, gospel actually wasn't a religious word. We think of gospel as a religious word, you know, gospel preaching and gospel music. But in the first century Greco-Roman world, it just meant good news. It just meant glad tidings. And it was often, most often used in military context. So maybe some, some, some nation would go off to war and they would win. 
And we didn't have texting, didn't have social media. How would they get news back home that they won? Well, they would send a herald or a messenger who would go back and proclaim gospel, proclaim glad tidings that we have won. It was often used when an emperor would have a birthday. They would proclaim good news. The emperor has had another year. Or when a new emperor came of age and, and ascended to the throne, the Greco-Roman world would publish good news, glad tidings. Good news, there's a new king in town. That's if you had a Greco-Roman background, but if you had a Jewish background and knew your Bible, it comes straight out of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 and following is going to be really important to Romans. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. There's that word, gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The good news is that God has returned to his people to reign as king. Or Isaiah 52, 7. Really wish we had time to read all of Isaiah 52 and 53. 53 is the song of the suffering servant. But before we get there, we read this. How beautiful upon the mountains, Paul will quote this in chapter 10, are the feet of him who brings gospel, brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news, gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So he's set apart for the gospel. He's set apart for the good news that there's a new king in town. Good news that God is reigning. Good news of a new king coming to fulfill the ancient promises. These ancient promises of Isaiah are coming to fruition in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's really only good news in light of bad news. And Isaiah 1 to 40 is filled with bad news. And Romans is filled with bad news. We've got a lot of bad news coming starting in Romans 1.18 and it really doesn't end. Till Romans 3.20, God the Spirit wants us to understand and feel and appreciate the bad news. Look at verse 18. It starts right off the bat. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The bad news is we're sinners. And sin is even more sinful than we realize. We're even greater sinners than we thought. And God's wrath, which is every human being's most fundamental problem, God's wrath is revealed against sin. God is holy. We are not. So the good news comes in, and it's the announcement that sinners like us can be declared in the right, can be forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done with us. Sinners can be made right with a holy God because of the cross of Christ. It's the heart of the message of Romans. It's the heart of the message of Christianity. So this gospel, this good news, it's an announcement. It's an announcement that something has happened and it's happened outside of us. It has happened in history. The gospel is an announcement about what has been done. It is not about what you should do. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is news. And the message of Romans, this news is not be good. Like most of the world thinks the message of Christianity is, be a good person. That's not what we're going to see. We're going to see that there are none good. No, not one. Romans 3, 9 and 10 and 11. There are none good, but in grace, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. If you're here and you haven't believed that gospel, you can do that today. 
If you already know you're a sinner and you know you need forgiveness, the good news of Romans every week will be that God has made a way for you to be right with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And the response is to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. You can do that right now where you are. If you have questions, talk with someone around you, talk with us, talk with an elder after service. We would love to chat with you about the gospel. It's the fundamental news of Romans, the fundamental news of the world. And notice the spirit here through Paul says it's the gospel set apart for the gospel of God. Look at it again there, verse, end of verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God, I think meaning that this gospel comes from God and is about God. One of the things I'm praying that God will do for you through our series is to make us more God-centered in our thinking and our living. Everywhere around us, the air we breathe is centered on mankind, man-centered. I hope Romans will turn our eyes up and give us a lower view of mankind and a higher view and a bigger view of God. God occurs 153 times in the book of Romans. This is God's gospel. It's the gospel of God. It's not man's gospel. Galatians 1, again, similar to Romans, this gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God's gospel. It doesn't come from any person. It comes from him. And because it comes from him, we can't tamper with it. We can't make it more palatable to postmodern ears. We can't soften its edges. It's not ours. It's not ours to edit it. We're called to be stewards of it, ambassadors of it. It's been delivered to us. It's been passed down to us. We dare not alter the message because it might offend somebody. We dare not domesticate it. It's not our gospel. It's God's. If you're in Romans, flip over to the next book, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, verse 1. The Spirit writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you, and by extension we, received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. The gospel continues to save us. We're going to see that probably in two weeks where Paul is eager to come to the church of Rome. He's eager to come to Christians and preach the gospel. If you say, well, hold on, why do Christians need the gospel? I'm real excited you're here. I hope you'll hang with us to see why Christians need the gospel every week, if not every day. We stand in the gospel. We are being saved by the gospel, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I, as an apostle, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received from God himself, not from man. What did he receive? Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice what he says here in 1 Corinthians, this gospel, it's of first importance. Notice he says it was in accordance with the scriptures. Notice he says this gospel was delivered and this gospel is received. It's not made up. It's not edited. 
It's not soften. It's the gospel of God. It's his. But that's not all. Look again at verse 2. This gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel fulfills Scripture. As we've already saw, the very word comes from the prophet Isaiah, right? Isaiah 40 and following. This isn't some brand new idea in the first century. This isn't some brand new revelation. As we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, this gospel was according to the scriptures. It was promised for centuries in the scriptures. And not only the scriptures, he says, but the holy scriptures. These scriptures are holy because they are the very words of God. We can't separate the word written from the word incarnate. These words are holy. And the scripture, and right here, clearly talking about the Old Testaments, is about Jesus. The gospel is the continuation and fulfillment of the story of Israel in the Old Testament. The Bible is one story, and the gospel is the heart of it. The footnote, this is why I love our children's curriculum. If you come on Sundays, if you have kids, if you don't, bring them on Sundays because what they're teaching is a curriculum called the Gospel Project, which does three things really, really well. Number one, it keeps the big picture of the Bible before their eyes again and again and again. And how many of us, it, was in, it wasn't until our adulthood that we began to see the unified story of Scripture. And so we're trying to teach our little ones from an early age that the Bible is one capital S story. Second thing, and the gospel is the heart of that story. Jesus is the heart of that story. Then the third thing, it keeps the mission of the church before them as well. And we see that right here. This is God's gospel written here to raise funds for mission, and it's with accordance with the scriptures. Luther says here, the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. That is, everything must be understood in relation to Christ. What we read in Romans is in fulfillment of what the Old Testament had predicted. Just think about it, starting at the very beginning of the story. Adam. It's created. Adam is the representative of all mankind. Well, we're going to learn in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, that Adam was a type of the one who would come. Adam, as God creates, is already putting in, uh, God is creating Adam as a type of one who would come. And in Adam, all mankind is found guilty, condemnation in Christ. All those who he represents are found righteous. Then Genesis, that's one, Genesis 3, there's this promise that the offspring of the woman will defeat evil, will crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be bruised. Well, who is that? That is Jesus Christ. Moving along, Genesis 12, God promises through Abraham and his family, the whole world will be blessed by an offspring of Abraham. Well, Galatians 3 tells us the offspring of Abraham is singular. His name is Jesus. He's the one who brings blessing to the Gentiles, to all the nations. In fact, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 18, the word is Pantata ethne in Greek. We're going to see that next week. Look at Romans 1, verse 5. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, Pantata ethne, among all the nations. God is making good on his promise to Abraham through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moving to Genesis 49, this offspring of the woman of Abraham will be in the line of Judah, and to him the tribute of the peoples will come. All the obedience of the nations will be his, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Exodus. Jesus Christ brings about the true exodus, freeing us not from Egypt, but from Satan, sin, and death. The tabernacle, some of y'all are reading that right now with F260. 
the place where God dwelt, the place where heaven and earth overlapped. Jesus is the tabernacle. John 1.14, he came and he dwelt, tabernacled among us. Jesus is the presence of God on earth. Jesus is where heaven and earth overlap. The sacrificial system pointed forward. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The priesthood. Jesus is our great high priest who intercedes on our behalf and atones for our sin. We could go on and on and on and on. The people of God continue to sin after all of this. They continue to sin. And the prophets promised through his holy scriptures, through the prophets, the prophets began to prophesy of this new thing God would do. God's going to return. Though you continue to be idolatrous and rebellious, God's not going to let you remain in your sin. He's going to come, Isaiah 40. He's going to bring a new exodus. He's going to free you from your sin. He's going to change you from the inside out. Ezekiel says our heart of stone will be taken and a fresh heart will be given. Jeremiah calls it the new covenant. God will come and he will bring about a new covenant with his people. It won't be like the old one. It'll be new. It'll be new in two ways. We now will be transformed from the inside out. The law won't be something that's outside of us. God will change our hearts, write the law on our hearts. And then he says he will remember our sins no more. Sacrificial system was a constant reminder of the fact that the people fell short. Every year, blood everywhere, lambs slaughtered all over the place. The prophets say one day, God's going to come and he's going to end all that and he's going to change you and he's going to fully and finally forgive you. And again, Jeremiah calls that the new covenant that Jesus brought about.